author of Wicked Fox. And I'm Clarabelle A. Ortega, author of Ghost Squad, and this is Write or Die. So we're going to do some, we're going to do some AMAs from our Patreon. Yeah, we got a bunch and we've kind of fallen behind. (laughs) (laughs) And we're sorry, you guys. We're so sorry. But we're going to do them Uh, all now. Quick, lightning round, questions, go. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, So, uh, this one says, hi, Kat and Clarabelle. I'm about to jump into the query trenches and wanted to know, what are the most important questions to ask a potential agent? Are there deal breakers that I should be on the lookout for? I think a lot of times I think writers are too eager to get representation that we forget agents ultimately work for us, not the other way around. Thank you for everything you do. Best wishes for the new year. Um, I feel like this listener has heard us talk about this before where they're like looking into our inner our inner thoughts <laughs> um you're absolutely right about authors wanting to sign with agents and being too eager um we will link the uh, jim mccarthy list of questions to ask agents in the show notes because i feel like those are really good and they give sort of a well-rounded view of what you should ask because there, it's a lot I would say transparency and communication and honesty are like the most important things. You want an agent that's going to answer your questions and not leave you hanging for a really long time. Um, That's going to be honest with you about things. And that's, you know, just going to give you the information that you are entitled to, like your sub list and um, rejections if you want them everything like that so and and it there's a lot of things that depend on like what kind of agent you want also like do you want someone editorial versus not those are more like preference type things but I think baseline you want somebody who is going to be honest with you at all times about your career and about the things that are going on and that's going to be communicative I agree and um, I also actually wrote a post for my writer's blog, writer's block party about questions to ask agents on the call. So I will link that as well. But in general, I think that you actually shouldn't decide that someone is your dream agent until you've had a conversation with them just because, yes, yeah, they can look great on paper and they could rep your favorite books, but everyone's working style is really different. And it takes a little, a bit of time to get used to this, especially if you've worked in a different industry, but publishing is a strange hybrid land where things are kind of personal to people. So just to be able to have a good rapport with your agent is really important because then your working relationship will just be that much smoother. You should be able to ask them any questions you have. You shouldn't be scared. You shouldn't be scared of like making them angry at you. (laughs) Like I bother my agent all the time. She was in vacation in like Mexico, I think. And I hated the end of my most recent draft of my book. (laughs) And so I like messaged her and and I was like, I know you're really busy. I know you're on vacation. Um, just whenever you get a chance when you're back, like if you can read the ending of my book. And she was like, if you send it to me before such and such time, I'll read it on the plane on the way back. And I was like messaging her being like, are you on the plane yet? Are you on the plane yet? I'm going to send it soon. Like, because I got so nervous <laughs> about like her being on the plane already. Mm. Um, but, you know, I knew she wouldn't get mad at me because she cares about me and she cares about my work. I mean, obviously that was a little extra of me to do, but I just think that, you know, we all have our weird quirks and we shouldn't be embarrassed of them as long as we're being professional. So yeah. just, you know, just be sign with someone who has a, has a good track record, obviously professionally, but also someone who you feel comfortable with because that's really important. Yeah, I totally agree. The comfort part is important. And it might take a little bit of time to get to that point. Like you can't expect to feel comfortable right away all the time. Sometimes you do. But if you are like totally scared of your agent and like you feel afraid of them, like throughout the course of like your career, like I feel like that's not great. I was intimidated by Susie in the beginning. I always tell the story. I was like legit scared of her, but I got over it in five seconds because 
she's so kind and we click and if I had felt that same unease like still like months into our relationship I don't know that it would have worked for me because I also need to be able to be a weirdo and like (laughs) just talk to someone and like send memes and if I'm having like a neurotic like author moment be able to be like please help me (laughs) yeah for sure I mean, yeah, and you're right. Like, it shouldn't be – it doesn't have to be immediate. But, like, if you're, like, three months in and you're still scared of emailing them, then – I mean, it's part of its nerves. But you shouldn't have to be scared of emailing your agent. Right. And and you have to evaluate why you're afraid. Is it something that, like, you're putting them on this pedestal or are they being really terrible to you, (laughs) you know? Because if it's, if it's the, if it's a former, then like, that's something you need to work on. Like, but if it's just that they're, they're being like snippy or mean or short, anytime you email them and they're, they're causing you to feel that unease, then that's a different, that's a different situation altogether. So the next question is from Sandy. It says, hi ladies. Hello. Um, this is, this is random, but can you share your skincare tips? (laughs) How do you keep your skin bright like your future? LOL, <laughs> Sandy. Um, oh my gosh, Sandy. This is great. Uh, I love uh, this, this question. This is such a funny question. Um, uh, you can go first, Kat, if you want. You want me to go first? Well, because yeah. I, I gave Clarva like a, a lecture about skincare <laughs> one. Not, Not a lecture. Doesn't. Not a lecture. Uh, uh, I just want, I just got really enthusiastic about it because she asked me one simple question and then I talked at her for like an hour mm-hmm. <laughs> about skincare. Yeah. Uh, but part of it is because I honestly do love uh, skincare, specifically Korean skincare. And part of the reason, here's my here's my pitch for Korean skincare, y'all, is that they use really great ingredients and they use ingredients that aren't drying and harsh on your skin. And it's very affordable. So yeah. I just feel like it's so great that they could do both of those things at the same time. Sometimes I feel like skincare that I get here, like Neutrogena or Clean and Clear and stuff are like really harsh on my skin. Yeah, for sure. I, I have to agree. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you, I I think like when we were younger, we were taught like if it's not like tingling, then it's not working. Mm-hmm. But that's a freaking lie, you guys. You yeah. were lied to. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, from for me personally, I'll just like t- tell you really quickly what my routine is. So if I'm wearing makeup, then I'll use an oil, oil-based cleanser first because that gets like all of the makeup off first. And then I'll use a water-based cleanser. You do not have to have both. Like that is just me being extra. And if you want like a really simple, cheap cleanser, you can get Therapy or Cetaphil. Those are both like good for sensitive skin. They're dermatologist uh, tested and recommended. So they're pretty good for most skin. Um, and then after I wash my face, I will use a toner because your pH balances off, right? You've washed off a b- bunch of the dirt, but you've also used like a chemical pretty much on your face. So you have to get your pH balance back. So you should use a toner. And then you can like literally just use a lotion if you don't want a thousand steps. That's totally fine. But I also u- like to use a serum. I use a vitamin C serum because it's really good on helping with skin damage and also any like, uh, like, imperfections on the skin like just like little like not freckles but like little dark spots like on my like skin. sunspots basically like sunspots mm-hmm. yes yes um and it's just re- really good at repairing sun damage like unseen sun damage on your skin and I grew up in central Florida y'all so like I definitely have years and years worth of sun damage that I need to take care of so yeah I do toner vitamin c serum and then just your basic lotion um right now I'm using Innisfree orchid line if people care about that (laughs) yeah um so my my routine is similar to cats I use like my face wash varies because like my face tends to get like dried out sometimes so like it sort of just depends and I have really sensitive skin so sometimes I'll use a face wash and like suddenly my skin is like no I hate this (laughs) and I have to switch so like I I use a lot of different um face washes depending on like my how my skin is feeling I use toner also it's like the a rose water toner and it's from a Korean company I don't know how to pronounce the name it's M A M. yep mm-hmm. that's the one <laughs> I love them yep. I mm-hmm. use that toner and then um I use vitamin c serum also the Claire's one I really love that I feel like that has made the biggest difference on my skin since I started using it um and then I have a day cream and a night cream 
So for the daytime, I use, it's actually not a Korean product. It's um, Ole Henriksen. How dare you? Um, it's um, <laughs> Ole Henriksen Sea Rush Brightening Gel Cream. I love this stuff. First of all, it, it smells like an orange creamsicle. And it is, it's really moisturizing. I just really like it. And it really does just like brighten up your skin. Yeah. And then at night, I use the Innisfree Orchid um, cream, which is, like, really thick and smells really nice. And I also yeah. always use, like, um, uh, sunscreen every day. I use, oh, like, yeah. a body, like, like a, like a stick, like a sunscreen stick. Like, I put that on my face mm-hmm. before, like, if I do any makeup or anything, um, I always use sunscreen. So, yeah, yeah that's pretty much my, that, my routine. I can't believe I forgot about sunscreen because yes. I was thinking of my nighttime routine. I yeah. mm-hmm. like you guys, I've given full like medical lectures to friends about the power of sunscreen and how important it is. Cause I used to work in melanoma research and like, it's so important, not only for like prevention of something like that, but like, sun damage to your skin is what ages you the most. Mm. So one of the best things you can do for your skin other than like putting lotion on it is putting sunscreen on it. And it's the best preventative care for aging and yeah. stuff like that. So yeah. yeah, any sunscreen, but um, a lot of uh, Korean lines actually make a face specific sun stick now. Oh, so really? That's really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't go outside now without sunscreen. Seriously. Like, I just, I feel like it, it also just makes a difference in how your skin feels and it it's just a good idea. And also like, especially with the nicer sunscreens they make now that they're not oily, they're, they don't smell weird or chemically, um, they make such nice sunscreens, both for the face and for the body. And if you wear makeup, then a lot of the sunscreens actually act as like a de facto face primer yep. and it helps, it helps the makeup go on smoother. So um, that's really nice too. And I also use the Claire's vitamin C serum and I use the Claire's daily supple preparation toner. We'll link all the products just yeah, in case anyone cares. Will. People will care. I feel like I get this question all the time. Okay. So our next question is, Hey, Ka- Oh, I can't even read my own name. What's the matter <laughs> with me? <clears throat> Hey, Kat and Clarabelle, how do you hold yourself accountable for working on your projects as often as you need to? I don't. (laughs) That's Kat's answer. (laughs) I was writing on a relatively solid schedule during NaNo, but now that it's over, I'm really just working on it here and there at random. It's not going to get done that way. Hope you both have an awesome new year. Okay, sidebar, for some reason, as I was reading this, I thought he was going to say, hope you both have an awesome answer. (laughs) (laughs) And if not, I'm unsubscribing. Um, why don't you, why don't you answer first this one? <laughs> um, so I think that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to like always be doing things and always be productive. And like, obviously if you're on deadline and you have a contract to a pool, then you have to get things done by a certain date. And, you know, if you're working towards a goal and you want to, to stay on top of Uh, writing that's good but I also think that sometimes when you can't do it it's because your brain is sort of telling you that you need a break and it's okay to not write (laughs) um for a little bit like it's okay to take breaks and to say like I'm not feeling it right now and just sort of wait until you aren't overworked anymore because I I feel like sometimes when the words aren't coming it's because it's a symptom of being overworked and your brain is just like I've had enough if it's a situation where you really need to finish or you're just sort of trying to finish by a specific date I have a whole thread on Twitter about this and I'll share it in the show notes but I do things that are sort of like related to the book but not 100% like I'll make a playlist to get me sort of in the mood for to write or I'll watch movies that can be like comped to the book or used as like inspiration or research. I do different things to sort of inspire me to want to work on it. And if there's a particular scene or chapter that I'm really looking forward to, I'll write it even if it's out of order just to get me back into the groove. And if I really need to be working, I take myself out of like my apartment, for example, and I'll go to like the coffee shop or a place where I'm normally productive. 
And sometimes I'll ask like a friend to come have a writing date with me because I feel like sometimes if you're writing in the presence of someone else, even though, even if you guys are not like chatting or anything, it will push you to get things done. So there's a couple different things that I use to, to, to make myself right. But I also like, as time has gone on, I sort of cherish the moments that I don't have to be writing and let myself sort of have a rest and live my life and get um, sort of fodder for my writing. And I feel like if you're not out there sort of experiencing things, then it's harder to, to write with any sort of like emotion or passion. Um, so those are my tips, but also let yourself take a break. That's my TLDR. What's your answer, Kat? (laughs) Um, ditto. No, (laughs) no, I agree. And I also think, well, I see in the question that, um, they said, that they were writing in a relatively solid schedule during Nano, but now that it's over, they're like they aren't working on it as effectively. And so, when you have a period of time like Nano Rimo, where you're kind of go 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 for like a, a long period of time, like thirty days, then it's reasonable for you to need to kind of like rest your brain and refill your creative well. So I don't think you should beat yourself up about that. But if you do feel like the reason why you're not writing regularly is because is not because of burnout, but because of lack of enthusiasm for the project, then I would reassess the project and not necessarily say it's not worth it anymore. But there's a really good system that Susan Dennard has and it's magical cookies. And sometimes we just need to remind ourselves about why we liked the idea in the first place. And a really good way to do that is to include something exciting that you love writing about in in each scene so that you're writing towards like something exciting and that way it kind of like drives you towards like certain short-term goals and things that you find enjoyable because if you don't like your book as the author then no one else is really going to like your book it's your you have to be your first fan so um those are just like some things that I do for myself because I I do realize sometimes that I wrote an outline nine months ago for a book and then now I'm kind of like eh I'm not really feeling it or the way it's playing out is like too slow paced or anything like that something I couldn't have seen ahead of time so now that I do see the problems I readjust and I just add things that make it more interesting to me because then it just drives me to actually finish the book so those are just like a few self-motivators that I use along my writing path yeah, I think those are really good too. Good luck with your project. We're rooting for yeah, you. Yeah, we hope that yeah, we hope that you find it enjoyable again and are getting are feeling good about it. Yes. Uh, um okay, so this one is next question is from Olivia Liu and she says, "Hi Kat and Clarabelle. I love this podcast so much. Thank you for for all you do for the community." Yay! Your episodes make me laugh and think and laugh some more. I was wondering if you two could talk about your journey in making writing friends. I always feel like I'm not doing enough in connecting to other writers, and I'm curious about what the reality of growing a community has looked like for you. Thank you so much, and Happy New Year! I've met Olivia. Oh, yay! I know, this is, like, weird and meta, but, like, I she came to one of my book events, so... Hi, Olivia. (laughs) I think this is really interesting because the advice that I would give to Olivia specifically might be different than I would give to somebody else. So because obviously, you know, we live in New York City. It's a hub of publishing. There's a lot of writing events. That's how I met. That's how I met Olivia because she went to some book events that I went to and we got to talking. And I think that that that's great. I mean, I honestly think that you're doing everything that you can do in order to kind of put yourself out there. And I think that you should be proud of yourself in terms of just a way to build a relationship after you've initiated the contact. That's definitely very subjective. And it's based on everyone's personalities and everyone's personal needs. And I know I keep plugging it, but my writer blog actually (laughs) just did a we just did a two-part series about this because people keep asking our, our critique group. Clarabelle and I are part of a gigantic critique group. And we get asked a lot about it, how we became friends with each other and how, how we maintain this friendship because we've all been friends for, uh, I think it's going on five years now for some of us. So, yeah, it's 
we gave our, our advice. I'll link that as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was about good communication. So like, just being honest with each other and talking through our feelings all the time and being open to each other's differing opinions because we're a very diverse group. And then the other one we think is a huge part of it is uh, understanding your own limits and being able to step back in a healthy way. Because sometimes we think like, oh, if I tell my friend that like I need a week or something, then they'll think that I'm mad at them or or they'll get mad at me or they won't be here when I come back. And I feel like that's a really, um, I feel like that's, an unhealthy way to be. If that's how your friendship is, then you need to talk to your friend. But if you're assuming that's how it is without actually asking your friend in the first place, then that might, you know, be you projecting. And so I think it's all about just like being like, it's the same way you make friends in real life. It's like trusting the person. Cause if you're friends with someone, you should be able to trust them. Being honest, open communication, sharing what you like, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that it can get like sort of feel confusing and like completing like the, the publishing journey with like making friends and like, how do you make friends with people? And is it okay to approach people who are sort of on a different, um, like step than you are? And it just like makes friendships like even more, I feel like getting into them like a little scarier. Um, but I feel like they're so meaningful because you're starting off from this place of shared interest. And like for me, I made almost all my writing friends through Twitter. So I would like participate in events and um, just like chat with people and get to know them and see like who I seem to gel with. And then I would just like slide into people's DMs and be like, hey, like um, and just like chat and see where it goes. Try not to force things. I know I've had situations where people are like, I want to be friends. And while that's adorable, I feel like it never really goes anywhere because it feels almost like like you're pushing something when it should just sort of happen. Not that it doesn't take effort. It does just like any friendship, but it just has to, I feel like, happen organically. And like because you guys have things in common. But Kat's absolutely right. You're doing the right things if you're going to events and like trying to like reach out to people and interact with them. For me, one of the ways that I made friends was when I tried to get into pitch wars and we made this sort of like little support group like of ch like chat with people and then like inevitably like that chat of like I don't know, maybe like eight people became like a smaller chat of like three people who were like the other people are really annoying we gotta get away from there <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and of those people i'm still really good friends with like with one of them is just andrea who is you know one of one of my closest friends and i'm really friendly with like um one of the other people and you know it all came from this like this chat and i i find that the offshoots of the big groups are where I sort of find my friends because I don't do well with like huge group chats or uh, groups in general I get overwhelmed mm -hmm. so so like the smaller groups are really good for me and I and I feel like you don't have to have a huge circle of friends it doesn't need to be this like giant circle of close friends you can have a community of people who support you as an acquaintance and as an artist and as an author and then you can have like one good friend or two good friends like that's good too you know yeah I think sometimes we put this emphasis on like a writing circle but like it doesn't need to be like a bunch of people like you can have like one or two solid really good friends and that is enough that's true and you know for the first I want to say two years that I was in publishing I really had one person who was like my go-to person yeah and and it's I think when you first get into it is when it's hardest. So it's easier for you to be like, well, you know, I, I tried and I failed and it's not a hugely integral part of my life because I try I was just trying it out. So I'm just going to quit. So the easiest time to quit is probably in the beginning because you haven't invested that much into it. But just having that one person helped me not quit, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I would say that having a single person who you connect to so well that you can trust them and vent to them and vice versa is more meaningful and powerful than having like a group of 10 friends who you kind of just like talk, talk on Twitter DM, but like never say anything meaningful. And I think also if you do have a bigger group of friends, like this is kind of piggybacking off of what you said, Clarabelle, 
if you're a part of a big group of people who like connected for a certain reason, say pitch wars, hopefuls or something like that, but small subgroup kind of break off, it doesn't mean that you still can't be friendly with the larger group. I think it means, I think that sometimes you have like a group of like 10 people that you all like talk and hang out and have a slack or something. But if like two of you like super duper love like thrillers and everyone else likes fantasy, it's okay if those two people have like a side conversation or a side yeah. chat mm-hmm. because they have a very specific interest that in- coincides with their, their interests. And it doesn't mean that they don't value the other people as much. It just means that like we're all our own individual people and our relationships with each other vary, even if we all met in one big group to begin with. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. 18-year-old Goom Young has a secret. She's a Goomiho, a nine-tailed fox who must devour the energy of men in order to survive. Because so few believe in the old tales anymore, and with so many evil men no one will miss, the modern city of Seoul is the perfect place to hide and hunt. Myung's life is upended when she kills a Dokebi, a murderous goblin, just to save the life of a human boy. But after Myung saves Jihoon's life, the two develop a tenuous friendship that blooms into romance, setting them down a path that will soon force Myung to choose between her immortal life and Jihoon's. Wicked Fox finds inspiration in Korean mythology, culture, and Korean dramas. It's been called a vibrant debut novel that employs the Korean genre's conventions for an utterly original take on the young adult fantasy by Entertainment Weekly, and fresh and fast pace by School Library Journal Review. Wicked Fox is out now from Penguin Random House and is available wherever books are sold. Our guest this week is Barbara Powell. She began her publishing career as a freelance copywriter and editor before joining the Goodman Agency in 2007, but feels as if she truly prepared for the industry during her brief stint as a stand-up comic in Los Angeles. Oh, sidebar, we will ask you more about that later. (laughs) She has found success placing thrillers, literary suspense, young adult, and upmarket fiction, and is actively seeking her next great client in those genres, but is passionate about anything with a unique voice. Barbara is also the author of Funny You Should Ask, mostly serious answers to mostly serious questions about the publishing industry, which came out on January 14th, 2020, and is based on her Writer's Digest column of the same name. Hey, Barbara, how are you doing? I am spectacular. How are you ladies this evening? We're great. Wonderful. (laughs) We're so excited that you're here, and we have listener questions for you as well our listeners are really excited that you're going to be a guest on our podcast (laughs) let's start off just in general with ask with having you tell us about your journey to becoming an agent you can Mm -hmm. get into as much detail as you want or you could just give us a quick summary Sure, sure. So I have a secret history. Let's just keep it between the three of us as a film and television actress in Los Angeles. And I also did quite a bit of stand up sketch and improv comedy. And I kind of got tired of really working hard to stay like 105 pounds and and really, you know, streamlined all the time living on a strict diet of Diet Coke. So I just started looking around for other things I like. And I was newly married at the time. And my husband said, you should be a literary agent. And I said, why? And he said, well, you like to read and you love your own opinions. I was like, (laughs) touche. All right. Um, So then I did what I think anybody should do whenever they're considering any career is I set up a whole bunch of informational interviews on both sides of the table. I met with editors and I met with agents. It was very quickly clear to me that my certain skill set was best fit as an agent. So then I started pursuing boutique agencies that were owned by women. And um, Irene accidentally put, you know, cracked the door open and I put my boot against it and shoved. And once you invite that vampire in, she ain't leaving. (laughs) So basically uh, convinced Irene that she should hire me. And that was about 13 years ago and haven't looked back. That's I love so that. Amazing. Oh, I love that mm-hmm. so much too. And yeah, it, so, so uh, definitely like as an agent, you have to be kind of a people person. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Yes, um, absolutely. Well, is that where your uh, background in like comedy and that kind of stuff comes in? Well, I mean, I can't help but use comedy all the time. I mean, it's a huge burden to those I love, but to me, it's like, it's like whatever the situation calls for, I'm going to have to make a joke. I mean, you could probably put duct tape over my mouth and I would still rip it off and make some kind of joke. So for me, that's always been my go-to. I'm sure some therapists would have a ball with that. I know my therapist has, but I think that overall what it's about is 
I think everyone should do two things in life. I feel like I say this all the time, but everyone should have to wait tables and everyone should have to do two minutes of stand up. Both those things teach you how to be exalted and humiliated all at once. Both of those things are very humbling in service and also very um, supportive in so far as getting a room together and getting on the same team. So for me, those two things way back in my life really helped shape how I approach the camaraderie, how I approach doing business. We're going to work hard. We're going to learn a lot and we're going to laugh a lot. And I think that that's the least we can ask out of life. And in the case of, you know, being able to diffuse a situation with comedy, who doesn't like that? So I do think that's a lot of my skill set as being a people person, being um, unabashedly unafraid to say the worst possible thing at the worst possible moment, I think has been very helpful. (laughs) But more often than not, it's just I think the ability to speak extemporaneously is something that is is key to being an agent because stuff is coming at you all day. I was mentioning before we started this podcast, it was a it was a tapestry of a day for me with a lot of different things flying across my desk, and I have to be a chimera and really change it, the approach that I'm making for each individual that's you know individual issue that's coming towards me. So yeah, I think waiting tables and being a stand up definitely was fabulous training for being a literary agent. That's great and I love kind of like your general life philosophy. I think it's a really great way of like dealing with the things that life throws at you in mm-hmm. a graceful method instead of mm-hmm. just screaming on Twitter about it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Which is like the alternative, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Did you do a lot of when you say brief stint as a stand-up comic, mm-hmm. how brief was it? And do you have any like on-stage horror stories that you can share with us? Oh, sure, I have tons. But <laughs> I, I mean, brief. I was probably. I mean, I was in my twenties, so everything was brief in your twenties, right? Mm-hmm. But like in my early twenties too, it's for the best time for making all the worst decisions. But for me, it was it was more about. And again, this is going to be news to to everyone listening. But it's a male-dominated field, and I think a lot of the stuff that happened when I was pursuing this and being a female pursuing this was awful and gross and of course (laughs) uncomfortable. But another part of that is about learning to wade through the nonsense and to still stay sane and to still, you know, lead with aggression without being, without reducing my femininity. And I think that's another thing that stand up taught me. Whoa, we went deep. Whoa, we brought it down. We brought it down. (laughs) Okay. I'll, I'll veer slightly then and ask you um, like, well, we know that the, quote unquote, average day in the life of an agent doesn't mm-hmm. actually exist. Correct. Uh, but people are always really fascinated to know, like, in general, like what an agent's job entails. So like, sure. if you were to build like a day in the life, mm-hmm. what would it kind of look like? Sure. So I wake up in the morning and I have my butler put my pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> just my like children. the rest of us. <laughs> yes, just like the rest of you. And my children have, you know, several nannies, a cut, like an entire, you know, force of nannies to take the care of them. No, usually I'm like shaving one leg in the sink with a piece of toast hanging out of my mouth, screaming at my kids to get their shoes on. And I get to the office and I usually have set up, I have a full calendar of events set up that day. And I, we should place bets because I can guarantee a day never looks like how I have mapped it out. Never, ever. It could be something mm. where today I'm having this conference call, but suddenly I get a phone call and I have a preemptive offer on the table for something I went out with yesterday. So you're like, okay, I got to switch gears. I got to get, you know, and that, then the calendar kind of gets rolled over into something new. And something I think also is a, a little bit of a unknown is that I don't read during the day. There's no reading during the day. I'm not like able to do that. What I'm doing during the day is working for my clients. So all that reading time is coming on nights and weekends and my children forget what I look like. You know, my husband's on match.com. It's all fine because (laughs) it's all about, you know, trying to maintain that work-life balance. But, you know, at any given moment, I am pitching a book. I am receiving an offer. I am giving bad news to an author. I am giving ferocious news to an editor or publisher. It is all, again, I just go back to being a kind It is all of the things all the time. And I could not imagine a better career. And I am so lucky. And so just in a constant state of humility that I get to facilitate art from these brilliant, mad, mad geniuses. Oh, I love that. That sounds so great. Yeah, I love I I super love whenever agents are like so enthusiastic about what they do because I feel like it's really not an easy job. Like agents have to deal with rejection and Mm -hmm. then like soothing someone else who's being rejected and like keeping them sort of motivated. And it's a lot. And you also get, you know, queries from like people who are terrible. Mm -hmm. It's just so much. So hearing an agent like be so super passionate about their job, I just love it. And I feel like 
if you're going to be good at it, you have to be passionate about it. Otherwise, oh, yeah. it's just going to take a toll on you. So Barbara, your book that just came out, I was mm-hmm. reading the description of it. And I really love that it says, well, first of all, I really like how it's very like truth bomb dropping and it's like <laughs> there's a certain perception from the outside that the published industry is a near insurmountable fortress with gatekeepers and naysayers manning the turrets <laughs> looking for any way to fire flaming arrows right. at the dreams of an aspiring writer mm-hmm. i like i feel like this is a book that i need to read just to mm-hmm. like give myself a slap in the face sometimes when mm-hmm. i'm like being like in my feelings too yeah much. be in those feelings get in those feelings yeah how did how did this come about? I know that it's kind of based on a column you were writing, but like, how did you decide I'm going to write a whole book about this? I mean, it was an incredibly difficult and arduous process. I was sitting across from my editor having a beer in Los Angeles at the Writer's Digest conference, and he was like, "Hey, we should we should think about turning this into a book." And I was like, "Tyler, sure." And that's how it happened. And so I was simultaneously the worst agent and the worst client for myself, like physician heal thyself, <laughs> right? It's like the shit like his children go barefoot or whatever. I was awful. I was just like the worst agent and the worst client because for me, this is both simultaneously a business card and a love letter to the industry where I, I want to demystify it. And I want us to uh, learn, like I said, learn a little, laugh a little. And I want to be saying like, we're, we're not here to prevent you from your dreams. I mean, I just want to grease you all up like little piggies and shove you through, you know, like I just, I want you to get to what you want. And it's, it's so exciting in that moment. Every email I open, every, everything I click on, I'm like, oh, this, I want this one to be it. I want you to be the one. I want you to be my sigh of relief today. And so that is part of the book too. Like I said, half business card, half love letter. I never intended, like when people are like, and also an author, I get the giggles. Cause I'm like, no, not really. I just kind of say a whole bunch of stuff and then, ty- you know, type it up and send it off to an editor. For me, this is, this was just, like I said, yeah, a love letter and a business card all at once. I love it. And it's, it looks like it also includes like writing exercises, submission checklists, things like mm-hmm. that. So there's some bingo like in there. There's some publishing bingo in there. <laughs> I love it so mm-hmm. much. Yeah. It sounds like it'll be really useful. I was, I'm, I'm 49% Ravenclaw. So when oh. I, yeah. And I once said that to someone, they're like only someone who's almost half Ravenclaw would put mm-hmm. a percentage on it. Yes, that is <laughs> like exactly right. But I like scoured the internet for checklists and things like that because I just needed to be able to have like a list of to do's and <laughs> like I would have died for something like this when I was querying. But well, um, we at the house of Slytherin approve, but also think that you should just plunge forward into the into the great unknown and see what happens. There's so many Slytherins in publishing. I feel like I feel like some of some of the Slytherins are lying. Not you, Barbara. I, I believe you. <laughs> but I feel like a lot of people who say they're Slytherins are not Slytherins in publishing specifically. Well, wouldn't that make them a Slytherin then? Like by default, if they're lying, if they're lying about being a Slytherin, do only know, Slytherins married- lie? I married the most Gryffindor of all Gryffindors, so I feel like it keeps me a little bit, like, a little grounded, but. I think that, I think that um, people who work in publishing are more often Slytherins huh. and Ravenclaws. That huh. makes sense. Yeah, but, like, authors are, are so often Hufflepuffs. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. So Anytime We're... an author's like, I'm a Slytherin, I'm like, no, you're not, you Hufflepuff. Are you <laughs> really, <laughs> though? You know what's amazing? Like, the universal lexicon that we're using right now is from a book. Like, yeah. a book written by a woman. Like, all of it. I just love it. I love that. Anyway, I, I was at a book event. I was moderating a book event. And we were doing the whole, like, oh, sort your character into, like, Hogwarts houses. And then there was a moment where we stopped and we were like, how did authors categorize their their characters before <laughs> Harry Potter <laughs> yeah it's a it was a big holiday around my house we gave my oldest child she's seven and we gave her the first Harry Potter and the way my husband and I behaved was like handing her I, I don't even know like a Fabergé egg and like I got all weepy and she was like, like why are you getting and I'm like this is just such a good book because we haven't let them watch the movie like don't, they don't know anything about it like you have to discover it on the page like we did and I was like reading the first paragraph out loud and getting all weepy and she's like can I have my book please I'm so sure <laughs> 
So now she's into it, right? And I love walking by and I look at her and she's in her bunk bed and she's like pulling on her lip or twirling her hair. And I'm like, what part are you on? And she's like, they, um, Hermione is in the uh, bathroom and the troll just came in. I was like, oh, like everything is she's reliving. I'm like, like lurking in the hallway, like a creeper peeking around the corner being like, what part are you on now? Like, but it's amazing. Um, and welcome to the Harry Potter podcast, everybody. The Harry Potter podcast. This is now Harry Potter or die. Harry Potter to children. I know. Okay. Let's okay. Let's now get into the listener because we do have. <laughs> oh, wait, we did that. Yeah, yeah. Right, I about that part. <laughs> we we want to make our listeners happy too, and mm-hmm. ask, actually yes, ask the questions. Okay. Let's see. Let's see. Okay. One questioner. Oh, this she says we can use her name too. Okay. Some of them are anonymous, but Misty asks, "What advice can you give to new authors who want to submit a manuscript to a publisher but have no clue how to do it?" Okay, Misty, first of all, you're not submitting your manuscript to a publisher. I mean, you can, of course, you can try and you can go to smaller houses and more independent publishers and you can do that. You're going to be submitting your manuscript to an agent. And the most common way to do that is that you're going to have a query letter and the first 10 pages of your manuscript as kind of the calling card. And you're going to look up the kind of agencies that represent the material that you have, the genre that you have, and you're going to do some research on the agents, or you can go to your library or your bookstore. And here's that. It gets a little woo-woo. I like you to go to the place on your shelf where your book will be and take the books to the right and left of that, pull them off the shelf and either check them out or purchase them and read them because they got in your genre, they got on their publishing path and they are on the shelf. Then you're going to flip to the acknowledgements and see who their publisher was and make note of it, but you're going to make note of the agent. You can also just sit in the library and go through the shelves and write, go to the acknowledgements and write down agents that represent the genre, that are thanked in acknowledgements that represent the genre that you are going for. That's quick and dirty. You can do it in pajama bottoms, you know, like get it done. But what you're going to do then is research very specifically who you're sending it to. And I'd like you to get 20 to 30 of them and make a spreadsheet or a notebook paper and keep track of them and make sure you're adhering to their query guidelines on what they're looking for and just have at it and try not to be too hot on yourself or to make any opinions on your work or how your work is being received until you've been out there for at least four months or have anywhere from 20 to, to 30 passes. I love that guide. What a perfect little like nugget of all of the things you need to know. Should I do this for a living or something? Maybe I should do this for a living. It was so, you just did it so quickly and just sort of like, boom, boom, boom. I love it. Um, And you covered like all, you covered like all the emotional things that are necessary too. Like it's almost like you have to deal with like clients that have a lot of emotions. Yes, my job is 99%, okay, 99.5% armchair psychology. I believe it because me and Kat are always having like mental breakdowns. Yeah, but I mean, that's what happens when you're creative and fabulous and like, I'm here for that, right? That's what I'm here for. I got you. I'm here for it. So, okay. So let's move on to the next question, which is leading the witness a little bit because they're like assuming that the story is exciting, but hopefully Mm -hmm. they're right. Um, Tell us the exciting story of the first book you sold. (laughs) Uh Um, It's kind of, it actually is really exciting. Yes. So... (laughs) When I started, basically, it was Sink or Swim. Irene Goodman, my boss, was like, here. And back then, in the olden days, back when I wore a, I used to ride a dinosaur into Midtown, <laughs> um, they were all done by paper. So it was paper submissions. So it was legit a slush bag, legit a room in the office that was piled shelves, everything, you know, manuscripts, partials, queries, all that stuff, envelopes. It was piled in there. And she basically opened the door to it and said, have at it, kid. Let's see what you got. So I went in there and I found something, I, I signed it and it was back in the day, it was uh, a romance, a Regency romance it was my first project I ever uh, took on and signed and sold. And when I sold it, um, it was on submission and one house loved the characters so much and one house loved the storyline. And one house was like, we love the characters, but we wish they were in Scotland. And the other was just like, we love this storyline. We wish it was, you know, we want it to be in Regency. So I basically talked to both of them. I said, well, can I sell you this author, this author with this storyline in Regency? And can I tell you, sell this imprint, this characters with Scottish. So I called my author and I was like, well, I sold your book, but I sold five of them to two different houses and you have to write. And she was like, what just happened? And even Irene was like, what just happened? And I was like, I don't know. I just, she's like, what you're doing is not a thing, but I did it. And both <laughs> houses worked very well together. Completely different publishing houses worked very, very well together. They even cross promoted each other in the back pages of their book, but she had two different names. And I sold five books in one evening based on a single novel. <laughs> 
And that was my first sale. Da, 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 just I've never heard of anything like this before. No, it's that was a truly inc- incredible. incredible. Yeah. It's called poelling it. I don't know. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, it is. It's, it's officially now called that. <laughs> that might be the title of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. um, all right. This listener asks, do you think that agents have brands? Like, do editors know what to expect when they get a submission from a specific agent? Okay. That is the first time I've ever had that question and I totally dig it. Gosh, but am I the right person to answer that question? Because I'm just me, right? Like I'm, I'm only got, I have my lens as being an agent, but I do know that when I call somebody and I say, Hey, Sometimes I'll just be like, Hey, it's me. Check your inbox. You're welcome. And hang up. Like that's kind of, that's, I'm able to do that because of the relationships that I've established. Maybe not necessarily my brand, but when I was starting out, you know, I didn't have a brand. I didn't have a, I didn't have anything except the reputation of this agency. Basically people wouldn't think Irene would hire someone unless she thought that they were going to bring in quality material. So first I leaned really hard into the legacy that was my agency. But then when I started to create my own list and have my own responses and sell my own books to great success, then I was building on my reputation. And then I, I can make those phone calls that say, Hey, check your inbox. You're welcome. Click. But uh, you know, I, gosh, that's a fabulous question. And I want to think about that some more. I love that. I, I'm not sure. I'm only just me, but yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting too. I have never, I've, yeah, I've (laughs) way to go listener. Yeah. I know. I love it. I wish we could patch in Holly Root. I'd love to hear her take on that. Like do agents have brands? And if so, we'll tweet at her. Um, Yeah. Let's tweet at her. (laughs) This next question is um, actually, I think interesting too. Uh, How does uh, your actual job compare to what you thought it would be? Oh my gosh. Why are your listeners so amazing? (laughs) Um, I mean, I think Irene was really good about saying, Hey, you know, you never, cause I was like, what's the average day? Like, especially when I was on informational interviews, I was asking that to agents all the time. And they were like, it's never, it's, you can never predict it. It's never the same. And I think I really took that to heart once I had my boots on the ground and I was actually doing this job. But I think one of the things that I am surprised by is my, uh, unwavering guilt at not being able to read things faster than I do. Because again, I'm doing all the, all the work stuff during the day and trying to read at night and trying to like, sometimes people get emails with me offering on them at like 2am on a Sunday morning because I'm (laughs) up at Saturday, you know, I'm up all night trying to read their stuff. And so I think for me, that was the biggest surprise is that my workday doesn't really I thought I'd be reading a lot. Like I'd be in fabulous shoes. I mean, I'm still in fabulous shoes, but like I'd be in, you know, my feet up on my desk, reading a manuscript saying, ah, oh, this is with my red pen. And that's, nope, that's not a thing. So I think that was the biggest surprise for me is that I work during the day, but I also work all the rest of the time. Although I would say, am I at work all the time or am I at play all the time? Because I'm having a good time <laughs> and they look the same. Having a good time, poiling it, just doing your thing. Poiling it. It's like poiling it in fabulous <laughs> shoes. Oh, Oh my gosh, your next book title, Poelling It and Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like and then we can work one. in the chapter on physical fitness and we'll work in our conversation but about rage, rage push-ups. Push-ups. <laughs> but we'll just yeah. tell your listeners that I'm I'm a huge fan of rage push-ups, dropping down and doing a whole bunch of push-ups when I feel the rage in the industry. I love I love it so much. <laughs> just... It's like half exercise, half like personal therapy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I it's so relatable. Multitasking <laughs> so well. Yeah. And there's so also, relatable. along with my rage push-ups in the office, there's also a rule here that I am not allowed to curse before 10 a.m. because the creative vitriol that spills forth from my lips <laughs> is so upsetting that the agency got together and was like, you're not allowed to swear before 10 a.m. Oh, so the other day I said something so filthy and horrible. And then I and then someone was like, oh, and I was like, it's 10.02. It's 10.02. <laughs> So that's another day in the life of Barbara Powell. Rage push up, cursing. By the way, you you are allowed to curse on this website, on this on this on this podcast. By the way, oh yeah, yeah. I don't know if you want to give me that license. Remember how we talked about letting that vampire in? I don't know if you want to do that. It is after ten though, so we want to like break the rules. Like we want to follow the set rules. I don't think I could, I don't think I could rage push up because I have very weak upper body strength, but sometimes when I'm mad, I cry until my, my abs hurt. So does that count? <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a thing. 
I would tell you, I was just, I was recently out with my friends, James and Jake, and I laughed so hard. I dislocated a rib and had to have it put back in. So I totally know what you're talking about, oh, um, but not with the crying. <laughs> I, I violently cried. Oh, oh, anyway, come over here. Let me hold you. I'm rocking you. Scare me, okay? Okay. <laughs> Next question. Um, do you have any deal breakers when it comes to the authors you work with? I guess this person's asking about like author behavior. I suppose. yeah, of course, absolutely. I mean, I don't have to state the obvious. Uh, of course, there is a. I have an internal moral compass, just like anybody else. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand by and watch behavior that I find to be, you know, disrespectful, deplorable, or upsetting, especially on social media. I won't stand by that. Thankfully, I have had a beautiful and luxurious list of authors for many, many years, and I have not had to ever bring the hammer down on that particular issue. But yeah, I mean, come on, let's, let's be human beings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all seen people act act a certain way on the social media (laughs) so we've all witnessed it i'm a mess on social media i'm not afraid to admit you're not like you're not like rude or or inappropriate i'm a little inappropriate (laughs) (laughs) i mean come on social media also i feel like what if if someone is doing that if my client is behaving in a way that seems odd or out of character and well I'm gonna pick up the phone and say what's going on you know like I have a couple times had to pick up the phone and be like hey um can we check in on that post you just did and kind of talk through what was going on and it's never it's like when my kid freaks out about putting her socks on it's never about the socks right it's about the fact that we're late and she's feeling pressure and anxious and nervous like whatever that post is about it's not about that what's it about let's talk this through without taking it to the taking it to the Twitter webs, you know, and putting a, something out there that isn't fully formed and that doesn't have the three-dimensional aspect of being able to engage in positive discourse or rhetoric concerning what you really want to talk about. So for me, when I see that, my first course of action is to call and be like, hey, what's going on? Whether it's a client or a friend or, you know, my mom. <laughs> yeah. I, I, hey, mom, that post you had on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> hey, mom, can you take that thing down on Facebook? It's awful. <laughs> and it's usually like a picture of me in the morning. She's like, oh, and I'm like, why would you? What do you? Okay. <laughs> do you feel like the way that you um, kind of not monitor, but like the way that you interact with your clients outside of like professional emails has changed because of social media? Whoa. Let's unpack that question. Okay. Do I feel that the way I interact with my clients out because the social media has changed no I mean okay all my clients have like my cell phone number can text me at at, like any time or and they kind of I mean look at I'm on a podcast with you and you kind of get what you're getting right you know what you're getting Mm -hmm. so they know what they're getting but no I, I, I don't think so I think it's a really fascinating question what about you do your interactions change with people because of social media um I I think I mean I don't I don't know what it what it's like to be an author and not be on social media so I think that's hard for me to answer I do know that Mm -hmm. because of social media people treat me differently because I have a lot of followers and they equate that to me somehow being well known or whatever um exchange there so 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 that sort of changes like people's perception perception of me and I've seen that happen like from when I first started off in like the book world when like I was just talking to myself on Twitter and now I have like thousands of followers and like people see me Mm -hmm. and they'll like freak out and I'm like hey I am not famous (laughs) please calm down (laughs) I I, I mean no usually you know if someone comes up to me and is like a little bit, you know, overwhelmed or something, it's, I, I can take a minute and talk to you and, and be normal. But I, no, I haven't really, no, I haven't really found that to be people treating me different. I'm pretty down to earth. And again, I'm always using humor mm. and it's a great diffuser. So it's a great diffuser for nerves or for, you know, discomfort or for rage or for anything. It's a great diffuser. So I think if I'm sensing that coming from someone, I'm probably going to resort to humor and, and diffuse the situation. That makes sense. Yeah. I think that's really useful too. I think humor can be a really great way to talk about things that are uncomfortable. I, I know I do that all the time when I'm talking mm-hmm. about sort of like things that are affecting like marginalized communities on Twitter. Yeah. If you sort mm-hmm. of buffer it with like something funny, it like softens the blow a little bit and also makes people listen a lot more, I find. Yeah. I think it's a good point. 
Okay, so what are some common misconceptions people have about being an agent? I think we we hit it right off the bat, which is that I'm some kind of gatekeeper. Like I'm not like a, like an elitist. Like I have you know I have a single idea, and that's the only thing that's getting through me. It's quite the opposite. I am like a like an eight month old Saint Bernard waiting on your porch for you to open the door. Like I am just walking back and forth, foot by foot. I'm slobbering all over the glass. I'm like, whatever you're bringing to me, I'm excited to receive and do something with. And you know, it might not be my thing, and it might not be what the what what's currently happening right now, but every single thing that comes through my email or across my desk, I'm, I'm so excited for it. And it's not, I'm not angry at you and I'm not trying to prevent you from getting something. I am so hoping that I can be here with my pith helmet at a jaunty angle and my machete and chop the path for you. So I think that's the most common misconception. The other misconception is that, you know, there are so many ways to skin a stegosaurus right now. You could have an audio only book deal. You could have a, you could do independent publishing. You could have an agent and go traditional publishing. You could put something on Wattpad. You could, there's just so many amazing ways to find your readers and to tell your stories. I think the big thing we're competing against these days isn't necessarily other books. It is other media. Mm-hmm. When I'm on the A train and I'm, I'm watching everyone, you know, 10 years ago, people had books and now everyone has their phones out and some are on social media or playing games, or maybe they're reading something on their phone, but it's hard to tell. And before it was like free co-op, right? You're on the subway and someone's holding up a book and reading it. And someone's like, what do you, especially if I'm laughing or doing it and somebody's like, what are you reading? So for me, I think that's the biggest, you know, other misconception is that there's, there's some kind of funnel that we're trying to get everyone through. No, no, no. We, there is a wide audience out there waiting for entertainment and we're here to provide it through this avenue, but there are so many other avenues and media platforms for entertainment. Yeah. I totally agree about the other forms of media sort mm-hmm. of like cutting into the reading time because it happens to me. So, and I'm not supposed to yeah. do that. Um. Yeah. And you know what? My author, my author, Nick Petrie has some kind of, um, Nick Petrie has some kind of software on his computer that like cuts him off from the internet from like 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. Yeah. And he's like, it, it has really helped my productivity. And I'm like, wow, that's, I love hacks like that. I love stuff like that. My problem is I just shut it off. So it's, yeah. <laughs> I don't have the discipline. I'm not good at that kind of stuff. (laughs) Okay. So this person wants to know what's the best agenting thing that's happened to you, but maybe like, if you don't want to say that one thing's the best, like what's one of the best agenting things that's happened to you? I can definitely speak to this. I think it's a common, I think it's a a good uh, outed secret now. The best agenting thing that's happened to me is I don't like to hug, but I am a famous hug misreader. So that means like in social situations, I will think someone is going to try to hug me and I don't like that. And so I'll aggressively hug them instead. (laughs) I don't know what that is. I have no idea, but there have been several circumstances when we've been at an event or at some kind of, you know, a a publishing event or award ceremony or something where a publisher or a VP or something is coming towards me and maybe gesturing or maybe doing something. And I go in there like a koala on a eucalyptus (laughs) and just hang with a big hug. And um, I think it's become quite known that not only do I not, I don't like to hug, but I will um, aggressively hug you. It's a dichotomy that I find enjoyable and painful all at once. And I think that's my favorite thing about being a professional is that, that this is known about me. <laughs> that's my favorite. I love that you preemptively hug people because you don't want to be oh, my angry. Yeah, angry. Like I'm like in there like, oh, you don't get to touch my body <laughs> without my permission. I'm a poor body without. And it's so aggressive. And then sometime we'll all you go out and I'll tell you some of my favorite ones that are horrifying and I mean they are always witnessed they always have like five or six six witnesses too and it's just like I'm sitting there and I'm embracing this gentleman and I'm like I've made a terrible mistake here <laughs> and yeah it's, it's the best so yeah those are my favorite <laughs> moments when I miss you the hug but the best thing that I like uh, what was going through my head as this was happening was mm-hmm. like as you're explaining this I like vividly remembered this happening to me once like so it happens to people like I I don't know if it's book conferences like where people are like are you gonna hug me and then they just do it I think Mm -hmm. it I think maybe it's like a thing in our industry I would let I mean anybody who wants to query me oh by the way barbara.queries at irenegoodman.com but anybody who wants to query me and include a, a misread hug in there I'm gonna I'm gonna laugh so hard because it's a real thing it is a real thing and I do it all the time. I don't mean to. I'm not trying to. It, I can't help it. Wait, so you don't want people to hug you, though? I don't want people to hug me, but 
And then I, again, aggressively hug. I, it's very, I don't know. Again, my therapist and I are really talking through things, so I'm not sure what it is. But also, did you notice how what I did there? Do you see how smart and intelligent I am? You're like, what's your best agenting moment? And I was like, zigzag, jazz hands, dodge, tap dance, we're done. <laughs> no, that was really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess we didn't specify that it had to be like to do no. with like submission or authors. No. <laughs> um, I have so good. many. Yeah, I have so many. Honestly, the moment that I get to call someone, the, the moment I offer representation is always really magical. But the moment I get to call someone and say there's an offer on the table is it's impossible to describe. It's absolutely impossible to describe how that feels to be able to tell somebody that. And so for me, those are my best agenting moments. That's great. Yeah. Sharing good news is always nice. Mm-hmm. What type of projects are you actively looking for right now? A great question. You know, right now, I'm really in the market for comedy. So that could be like a, a space opera with some uh, comic relief in it. That could be upmarket fiction, you know, epic family fiction with comedy in it. And it's hard to do because of my comedy background. I'm like, I'm funnier than you already. Like I'm so <laughs> such a snob. So like, it's hard to make me laugh, but I really want to find, I feel like right now more than ever having some levity in, in, in the conversation is important. And I want to find some, some more humor through my works. My stuff tends to have a lot of teeth, real edgy, all my stuff. And so I'm going to, I want to switch gears a little bit and find, find something that's um, up market uh, with some good comedy. I mean, I, there are so many books out there that I read that I love that are, you know, chuckle worthy and laugh a lot and sparkly and jazz handy. I mean, Christina Lauren, you know, Jasmine Gilroy. I'm just like naming all of Holly's clients. Why are you, we should just get Holly on the line. But like, there's so many sparkly authors out there that bring, you know, some, some joy to the read. And I, I would like to dip more into that side of thing. But I got to say, I mean, my favorite thing is still thrillers and suspense. I like being, if you can trick me, if I don't know who done it, I'm doing the little air bunnies, the air quotes, who done it. That, that's great but yeah usually it's going to have some kind of darkness or edge to it all right okay that, that kind of is similar to our last question which what are so outside of like what you want to be seeing mm-hmm. do you notice any trends in your inbox and yeah, sure. do you have a prediction about the next big thing in so interesting everyone always asks me about my prediction I don't for me the what I'm seeing still in my inbox is a lot of YA fantasy, just so much YA fantasy. I think there's still a, a, a pretty robust market in there, but I have such a spectacular stable of YA authors that to me, you have the bar is raised so very high on YA fantasy. You'd have to be like a real genre buster for me to make a run at that. I'm like a real fat line on the Serengeti, like a pretty nice gazelle is going to have to go by and make me get my ass up and chase it. So like, I, I I just think that right now, while it's still robust and people are still looking for it, I might not be your best person for that. Cause I just have them. They're just knocking them out of the park. My, my guys are so good. So that being said, you know, I think the unreliable narrator is still really attractive, but also if, if I can see it coming, if I can see what you've done to make this real, narrator unreliable what I, I'm not down for you know let's have this woman be addicted to something or let's have this you know whatever I want something more creative about why the why this person is unreliable and so far as what's coming next what I would really like to see and I am gonna man oh man if I have to knock on doors till my knuckles bleed to find this and to push this I want to see more books that feature women as for lack of a better term, action heroes without it being like a thriller or an action book. But like a lot of times you you were reading thrillers or were reading, you know, historical fiction and it's featuring some grand sweeping, sweeping adventure. And the female role is the, the able sidekick to the male role, whether it's in thriller or, you know, what have you. And I would like to see a little bit more. I mean, with, with the success a few years ago, you know, of Wonder Woman in the theaters and everyone was scratching their heads like, well, golly, how did, how did Wonder Woman do so good? It's like, well, because (laughs) women like to watch themselves be reflected as the hero guys. (laughs) And so for me, that's still what I'm, I'm like, I can see it. I can see the shelf space for it and hook or butt crook. I am getting in there and I am really pushing for that genre because I want to be able to hand kids, my kids books that feature, you know, swashbuckling women that aren't, that, you know, that are fully formed characters. And I, I want that. I want that so badly. Yes, we want it too. Absolutely. Sure. And I think it's happening so well in YA. It's just time for the adult side mm-hmm. to see that too. Um, mm-hmm. For sure. Honestly, if if I had the predictions, we'd be doing this podcast on my yacht off of Turks and Caicos, you know? Like, <laughs> oh, that would be nice. It's too cold no, in New York I'm, right now. 
I know, right? <laughs> and you know, and that's another thing too. It's like, what if I had, what if I'm like, this is the next big thing. Here's the best part about publishing. Like the readers decide, mm-hmm. right? It's a, and I say this all the time, it's a Plinko game. It's like, I mean, it's the game the, from Price is Right. You can put the chip in the same spot every time it's going to come out a different spot. You can spend a million dollars buying this book and it sells 1200 copies. You can spend $4,500 buying this book and it sells 150,000 copies. It's just phenomenal and fantastic. And I love it. So Barbara, can you tell our listeners where they can follow you on the internet and where they can reach you if they want to submit to you? I know you already said it, but let's just give them a little reminder. Yeah. Well, so the internet I think <laughs> I think my Twitter is B Poel. I think my Twitter is just B Poel. So letter B P O E L L E. Um, and then my you can find me at barbara.queries at irenegoodman.com. Okay, perfect. And we will link all of that in the show notes below. So everyone who is on Write or Die tells us either their most embarrassing publishing-related story or something they wish they'd mm-hmm. known before they started. So you can do both. You can do either or. It's up to you. Oh, my gosh. That's really good. I mean, I think, honestly, you're probably right, the hugging, because so many <laughs> I'm so many people's other cringe where like they watch it happen and they're just like cringing and they just go home and replay it over in their head. I, I don't know. I think one time when I very, very early on in, in publishing, just being out and about and, and saying things and being, and being in front of people and just realizing that I, I don't mind getting embarrassed. Like I don't mind walking up to this publisher and asking a question and then being like, well, as the publisher, and I didn't realize they were the publisher of that. <laughs> I think one of my, my favorite ones is when I was out to lunch with, who was this? Oh, I was, I won't say what book it is, but I was out to lunch with Mark Tavani from Putnam. And we, he mentioned a book and I just started ripping into it about well, how it broke the contract with the reader and how, and I'm saying all the <laughs> shit about it as I'm talking. All of a sudden, like a bloated corpse of a thought rises up in the back of my brain. And I'm like, oh, he edited this book. Oh, no. And I finished my I finished my current sentence. And I was like, but I mean, you know, <laughs> one one woman's horrible opinion is another man's bestseller. And he's like, yeah, when I was editing that book, I thought, gosh, we're really going to have a bestseller. And I was right. And from then on, I swear that's what cemented mine and Mark's friendship forever. Because I just <laughs> rail on this book. But, oh, wait, no, I have the best. Okay, let's end on this note. So when I was a baby starting out, like a baby agent just like staggering around out of the forest, still covered in afterbirth, hoping everything's going to just come up, roses and butterflies. When you sell a book, you are not, okay, let's pretend I sold a book for $100,000. So the commission on that is 15,000, right? But the half of that goes to the agency. You're usually at a 50-50 split when you start. So that's $7,500, but that's paid out over sometimes 18 months, right? So you have execution, delivery, and publication. So I secretly supplemented my first year and a half or so of agenting as waiting tables. So I went out, I had this project I went out with. It did not sell it, but an editor was like, I love this so much. I, I really want to take you out to lunch. I want to talk about what all you have. So we went out to lunch, had this amazing lunch. She was a senior executive editor. A week later, she comes into my restaurant and sits in my section and I have to wait on her. And I think to myself, okay, this is one of those moments, Powell. Like you can either give her table away and hide in the back, or you can walk up to the table with your head held high and take her order. And I walked up to the table and she had a moment, a jarring moment where she pulled it together very quickly and it was very gracious and it went unsaid. And I take that moment to remember to always that, that humility that comes in with us, you know, like we're all doing the best that we can. Hopefully if we're good people, we're all doing the best that we can. And the least we can do is extend a little grace and kindness to one another along the way. Oh, I love that. That is a perfect note to end on. You were correct. (laughs) I love it. That's so great. I love it so much. All right. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much, Barbara. Yeah, it was great. Great chat. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you so much. You guys have a fabulous evening and uh, catch you on the interwebs. All right. Bye. (laughs) Have a good night. Thanks for listening to Red or Die. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a review, and while you're at it, be sure to pick up Wicked Fox by me, Kat Cho, and Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.